Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings, chapter number 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible, turn to page 265, and you would find yourself parked at 1 Kings 17. I want to start off by asking you a question. How many people saw the three-part movie series, Back to the Future? Let me see hands out there. Yeah. Most of us have seen that, the time travel movie trilogy. What you may not know is the idea of time travel was first popularized back in 1895. An author by the name of H.G. Wells wrote a book called The Time Machine, and in that book he came up with the idea of time travel, and he postulated what would it be like if a time traveler were to go back 1,000 years Well, today we have an opportunity to go back 28 centuries to the time of Elijah. And you know, I just love the scriptures. I love how the Bible is so relevant to us today. Paul says something very important when he wrote to those in Corinth in his first letter in chapter 10 and verse 11. He says, these things, the things of the Old Testament, happened to them as an example for us. And he says, they were written for our instruction. So as we travel back in time, 28 centuries, there's something we have to learn. There's an example we have to learn from, and there's things here that are written for our instruction today in the 21st century. We're launching a new series today on the life of Elijah, I have entitled it Ordinary to Extraordinary, and we're going to have the opportunity to spend seven weeks together seeing what God would instruct us about regarding the life of Elijah. I've entitled today's message, Living in a Warped World. And we're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at Elijah's world, the time in which he lived. Then we're going to look a little bit at Elijah the man, And then thirdly, we're going to begin to talk about this principle that God calls ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. I would like to just read the very first verse of chapter 17. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was one of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that verse begins with what seems to be a very insignificant small word, which is the word now. And whenever you're going to learn about a historical figure, it's important and pivotal that we learn their historical context. And the word now just screams we must look at some of the background. Now, if you know the history of the kingdom of Israel, you'll know that a real downward movement began with King Solomon. King Solomon ended up marrying women from nations that God said you should have no interaction with them at all. And he married a number of them. In fact, he married 700 of them. And many of them were foreign women 
who had other gods. And as a design to appease his wives, he created places for them to sacrifice to their gods. So I don't know how many places there were, but with 700 brides, there was a lot of appeasement to do. That's where the downward slope really began. Those of you who are familiar with Old Testament history would know that after Solomon died, the nation split into two entities. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, comprised of 10 tribes, and then there was the southern kingdom of Judah, comprised of two tribes. But Elijah in particular was functioning in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so I want to just take a very brief look at the first seven kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. The first one was a gentleman by the name of Jeroboam. And we learn in chapter 14 and verse 16, it says that Jeroboam made Israel to sin with these idols. It appears that Solomon only wanted to pacify and appease his wives. Jeroboam takes it another level. He begins to force the nation to also worship these idols. In fact, 18 times it says Jeroboam made Israel to sin. Second king in the northern kingdom, a guy by the name of Nadab. In 1526, it tells us of him, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Talking about perpetuating this more. Then there was the third king, Basha, in 1534. It says of him, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You're beginning to see the direction of all of this in the culture. And then there was, fourthly, Ella, who was king. And in 1613, it says, he provoked the Lord to anger with idols. And then there was the fifth king, which was Zimri. And I want you to see how Zimri became king. Look at chapter 16. In verse 8, we have Ella as the king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And verse 9 tells us that his servant, Zimri, who was commander of half of his chariots, he was one of the tank commanders, if you would, of half the tank supply of the northern kingdom, a military leader, and he conspired against Ella. And he went in, verse 10, and struck him in his royal palace and put him to death. And then I want you to notice, it says in verse 11, it came about that when Zimri became king, as soon as he sat on the throne, that he killed all the household of Basha, which was the father of Ella, killed all of them, did not leave a single male alive. Anybody that was related to the prior king got a bullet in the head. And not only did everyone who was related get a bullet in the head, but he says neither of his relatives nor of his friends, everybody who was a friend of the king, Ella, and his family got wiped out. Every male was executed. Well, obviously this was a big coup. And in verse 16, when the nation of Israel heard what had happened, um, they decided, verse 17, to appoint Omri as king, and so they begin to besiege the city where Zimri was in verse 17, and eventually they can't hold off the whole rest of the, the kingdom. So in verse 18, when Zimri saw that the city had been taken um, by uh, Omri and his forces, he went into the citadel of the king's house, and he burned the king's house over him with fire, and he died. You know, Zimri was an evil guy. 
And the way he decided to go out was just to sit in the house, set it on fire, and sit there and commit suicide in the fire. Well, obviously, Omri is the sixth king, and we learn about him in verse 25. It says there, repeating story, but he takes it up a notch or two. It says, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. Omri is the high point of evil to date. Now, there's a lot of evil. There's idolatry and immorality and assassinations and cutthroat ruling, and Omri's the worst of the bunch. He's the high point of evil. And that leads us to the seventh king, which is Ahab, who is Omri's son. Look at verse 29 of chapter 16. It says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And notice what it says regarding Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So you have all these evil guys who are leading to this downward slide in the culture, and Omri was the worst up to that point, and his son Ahab is even worse than that. He outdid everyone before him. Now, there are three key specifics about Ahab we just want to note, because he's going to play a key part in this whole story of the life of Elijah. The first one is in the first part of verse 31. And it says that it came about, speaking here of Ahab, that it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, who was the first king. The ESV says it was a light thing for him to do this. In other words, to continue this propagation of idol worship and the degeneration in the nation and everything that went with it, he considered it to be a trivial thing, a light thing. It was nothing. It was teeny. It was itty-bitty. It couldn't be more minor to Ahab. It meant nothing to him, but it meant a lot to God. Second key specific we want to know about Ahab, if we're going to understand him as a character in this whole story, is his marriage to Jezebel, and that is talked about in the second part of verse 31. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Now, what is really interesting is this marriage to Jezebel, she is the very first wife of a king who is mentioned in our text. Why is that? Well, it's because of the pivotal influence that Jezebel had. We learn there in verse 31 that she was a Sidonian. Now, Sidon was a key city in the Phoenician Empire. If you can think of your way in your mind of modern Lebanon, that's where this was located. And the Phoenician Empire or the Sidonian Empire was a very powerful empire. They were there on the eastern side of the Mediterranean and they founded colonies all around the Mediterranean area. And the Phoenicians or the Sidonians were the commerce kings of the day. They controlled all of the shipping that would go on in that area. Why did he marry her? It was a marriage of convenience. He was thinking for the northern kingdom of Israel, hey, we want to ensure prosperity. Who better to link up with than the Phoenicians, the Sidonians? Man, they, own all, they were like the people who owned all the airlines of the day. We're linked up with them by marriage, and oh boy, is that going to bring prosperity to the northern kingdom. 
We learn there in verse 31 that Jezebel was the daughter of a guy by the name Ethbaal, who was king of the Sidonians. That name, Ethbaal, literally means with Baal. You know, her dad said, you want to know who I'm with? <laughs> I'm aligned with Baal. That's my name. Now, Ethbaal, we know from history, was one of the most cruel and vicious people who ever lived on the face of the planet. How many of you grew up with brothers? Let me see your hands. You grew up with brothers. And I never had a brother. I wish I did. But here's what Ethbaal did. He murdered his way to the throne by assassinating all of his brothers. Can you imagine what kind of a person would do that? Say, I'm going to take out every one of my brothers so I know the throne is going to belong to me. One commentator said regarding Ethbaal, he said his dynasty was the most wicked dynasty on the face of the planet. And Ahab married into this? He married the daughter of Ethbaal? And you know what came of that? Jezebel brought with her Baal worship in the nation. In fact, it started popping real quickly. The first thing she did, we see it in chapter 18 and verse 4, is that she went on a personal campaign to kill every prophet of Yahweh in the entire kingdom. She wanted to butcher as many of them as she could get a hold of. And she was destroying them, killing them in verse 4. And Obadiah had to grab a hundred of them, and he hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. He had to sneak it into them because if she found out they were there, they were all dead. That's the first thing Jezebel brought to the kingdom of Israel. Second thing that she did is she brought along with her a horde of prophets of Baal from Sidon. She brought 450 of them from her home turf and brought them into Israel. And not only that, but we learn from chapter 18 and verse 19, not only were there 450 prophets of Baal, there were also 400 prophets of Asherah, and in their scheme, Asherah is the mother of Baal. And so you have 450 and 400, that's 950 of these pagan prophets, and we learn that on a daily basis at the royal dining hall of Israel, Jezebel was feeding them all. Three meals a day, 950 evil prophets. You know, when you start talking about bringing Baal worship into Israel, it's important to understand a little bit about that. You know, Baal was a god who was supposed to demonstrate his presence through rainstorms and through thunder. You know, in an agrarian world, that's very, very important. And yet, the worship of Baal was extremely vile, extremely licentious, and extremely cruel. The worship of Baal was infamous for two things. <laughs> Number one, it was inf infamous for deviant eroticism. It was under Baal worship that they perfected and promulgated erotic poetry, which was the pornography of the day. And one of the things that they would do as part of Baal worship is they would have these dramas. And the, and the idea of the drama was to act out the sexcapades of the god Baal. And so this is what they would do. They would actually have, as part of acting out those dramas, group sex with the priests and the priestesses of Baal. 
You know, imagine that. Where are you going? Eh, we're headed over to church. It's going to get very interesting at church. <laughs> you know, they were infamous for the deviant eroticism, and also, secondly, they were infamous for their child sacrifice. Now, why would they do those things? Why would they have these erotic dramas and act all of this stuff out? Well, they were trying to just please their concept of Baal as a god. You know, we're, we're going to act out all the activities that you do. Uh, we're going to cut the throat of our children and sacrifice them to make you happy. All of that was being done in the, in the name of promoting affluence and prosperity. You want to be affluent and prosperous, you'll act out these things. You'll sacrifice your child, and he'll be impressed, and then he'll bless us with rain and affluence and prosperity. Dale Ralph Davis talks about the time in Israel just before Ahab and the time in Israel just after Ahab. And here's the way he describes it. Before Ahab, he said the nation was like morally drinking from polluted water. I've never had to drink from polluted water. It doesn't sound very fun. But that's the picture of the nation before Ahab. Afterwards, he said the nation was morally sucking raw sewage. Now that is a significant step down. In 1 Kings 21-25, it says this, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. She was the driving force behind all of this. And historically, her name became synonymous with religious sexual immorality and spiritual darkness. In fact, in the New Testament, when the book of the Revelation is written and Jesus is sending a message to the church at Thyatira, he says, I have this against you that you tolerate Jezebel. Well, now, he doesn't mean literally Jezebel because she died centuries before. But again, she is synonymous with religious sexual immorality and spiritual darkness. We're talking about three specifics that relate to Ahab. The first one is how he just considered this walking away from God to be a trivial thing. He was eagerly following along the chain of sin and rebellion. He married Jezebel. The third thing he did might surprise us and that is that he approved the rebuilding of Jericho. Look at chapter 16 and verse 34. It says, in his days, that is in the days of Ahab, Hiel the Bethlehite built Jericho. And you might be saying, well, what was the big deal with that? I mean, remember Jericho and the walls came all tumbling down? I mean, what's wrong with rebuilding a city? Sounds like something you ought to do. But the Lord had inspired Joshua to communicate something. We see it in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26. And Joshua pronounces a curse there, and he says, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. God said, I don't ever want this city rebuilt. And whoever rebuilds it's going to pay a big price. Well, go back and look at verse 34. It says, in his days, Ahab's days, he gave permission to Hael, the Bethlehite, to, to rebuild Jerusalem. And he laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates 
with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And why is that significant? It's because everybody in Israel knew the curse that had been delivered about rebuilding Jericho. And giving permission for that to happen was a very high-handed, in-your-face, God, thing for Ahab to do. He was basically saying, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do what I want to do. And then God delivered on the curse that he had proclaimed. But it tells us a lot about Ahab. Now, now, just think about, this is Elijah's world. And is this not a rather difficult environment to be in? I mean, it's a difficult environment to step up and identify yourself as a follower of the true God. It's a difficult environment to risk the potential rejection and condemnation or even worse that could come your way. You know, it's interesting to me, our culture, I think, is also trending downward. Have you been feeling it recently? Have you been feeling the, the sense of growing times of desperation? And you might say, well, oh, oh, yeah, I, I see some of that, but boy, you know, at least we don't worship idols like they did there in Israel. But we need to remember that an idol is anything that we put in a place where God should be. And the truth of the matter, men and women, is that we, we even in our culture worship idols. You know, we worship in our culture, the God of sex. It was interesting, I was looking up some, some uh, statistics this last week, found out that the United States of America is the number one producer of pornography in all of the world. And the United States is the number one consumer of pornography in all of the world. In fact, the, the second place country, you have to go like three times them to get to us as the number one. The second place country is the United Kingdom. Every second, there are 28,000 plus people watching pornography on the internet. Every second, there's $3,000 being spent on pornography. We, in our culture, worship the God of sex. And you know what's interesting about the God of sex? It's that the invasion of this into our culture is beginning to get lower and lower. We now have the invasion into the sexual activity of our middle school students, worshiping the God of sex. And, and it's even led to, because we worship the God of sex, an attack on God's design for marriage. And then you might think, well, wait a minute, okay, I, I see that. I, I see that we do idol worship too, but at least we don't sacrifice children. Really? You know, the latest stats I could find were from 2013. And in 2013, in the United States of America, 660,000 reported abortions. 660,000 in one year in our culture. Now, God's big enough, you know, to bring forgiveness to repentance for those kinds of things. But this is our culture we're talking about. Someone came up to me you know, after the last service, and they said, well, you ought to add in child trafficking to all of that in terms of sacrificing kids. It's so true. 
We worship the God of sex in our culture. We worship the God of materialism. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. You know, it's all about stuff, 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 more stuff. And you know what I always notice? I notice, and you've heard this a lot recently, let's do anything we have to to gain prosperity because prosperity is the most important thing. That's worshiping the God of materialism. We also worship the God of entertainment. You know, you see it very clearly in the, the amount of salaries we pay our athletes because we worship there. It doesn't mean there's entertainment's wrong. I enjoy entertainment. I enjoy being entertained at certain things. But it's interesting that what we pay for entertainment in our culture every month exceeds what is invested in God's kingdom every month. There is. I don't need to convince you of that. There's just a downward flow to our culture. There's the political turmoil we see. Our leaders seem to be political leaders paralyzed. They can't get anything done. We have this increasing racial unrest that we're feeling. There's the growing nuclear threat. Uh, there's the radical Islam war that is coming upon us where they want to wipe the Western culture off of the map. And what's happening in the midst of all of this for those who name the name of Christ? Well, increasing hostility is coming our way, right? Increasing hostility towards followers of Jesus and believers in the Bible. You know, now we're being called bigots and haters because we desire to uphold God's standards. And the aim in all of this in our culture is to silence those who walk with God and speak for God. You know, we don't often talk about this stuff, but... It's important, I think, for us to acknowledge it. I want to read to you a quote from John Butler, something he wrote that I think is amazingly spot on. Here's what he wrote. Evil often seeks to be allowed and permitted on the basis of tolerance, freedom of expression, rights, equal time, etc. But once it gets a foothold, you can count on it changing its tune about tolerance and equal rights. It will be sovereign, and any competitors will be cruelly battered into submission. Man, you know, I saw that, and I thought, wow, what a description of what we've been seeing happening recently in our culture. You know, you would have thought he wrote that last week, but he actually wrote that in 1994, almost a quarter of a century ago, but he understood the way that it works. And with all this happening in our culture, let's just be transparent. I know I struggle with this. It becomes easy to kind of just drift with the cultural current. You know, it's easy to just say, I think I'll just sort of blend in. I don't really want to make a lot of waves. It's easy to drift. It's easy to blend in rather than stepping up and, and speaking up and standing alone if necessary and even risking rejection on the part of our culture. You know, men and women, I think we can learn something from Elijah. I think we can learn something from this guy. You know, back in chapter 17, verse 1, it begins with the word, now. You know, now we have a better feel for his world. The nation was in a spiritual sewer. That's Elijah's world. Let's look at Elijah the man. There in verse 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite was of the settlers of Gilead. Now a Tishbite was someone from the town of Tishbe, 
And as much as we have tried to locate the town of Tishbe, we have never been able to find it. Don't really know where the town of Tishbe was exactly. But it also tells us that he was of the settlers of Gilead. And again, if you think of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River were the mountains of Gilead. It's fascinating to me that we know nothing about this guy. He was from Tishbe, we know that. And he, his family background were the mountains of Gilead. But other than that, we know nothing. There's no genealogy. There's no word about his parents. There's no word about his grandparents. He was likely not super educated because he was from the mountains, you know, not the big city of Jerusalem. You know what? I think this is all by design by God. It's emphasizing that Elijah was an ordinary regular guy. You know, and the New Testament backs that up. In James chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And I remember when I first read that, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, time out, God. Are you kidding me? I mean, Elijah was a guy who prayed and resurrected a widow's young son. Dead as a doornail, he prayed and he was resurrected from the dead. I've never done anything like that. He was a guy who faced down 450 prophets of Baal and called down fire from heaven. I've certainly never done that. And when he died, he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. And I can say, when I die, I don't think there'll be a chariot of fire pulling up at my house. So, you know, to me, early on, there was this disconnect that went on. Are you kidding me? He's an ordinary, regular guy? But the truth of the matter is that he was really like us, an ordinary, regular guy. He had to face a hostile culture. He, we're going to see, was a regular, ordinary guy who experienced fear and loneliness and doubt in his life. He was a regular guy even after a big spiritual victory, like with the prophets of Baal. He hears some threats from Jezebel, and he takes off running as fast as he can in the other direction. We're going to see he was a guy who suffered from discouragement and depression. He was an up-and-down guy. You identify with that? And he even develops a Lone Ranger syndrome, you know, of a little bit of self-pity, like, I'm the only one who's doing anything spiritual around here. It's just a shame I'm the only one. And he lived in a time of a degrading culture and a time of desperation. But don't miss what made this ordinary guy extraordinary. Look again at his name there in verse 1. His name is Elijah. It breaks down into several things. The E-L is one of the names for God. The J-A-H is a shortened version of Yahweh. And the I in Hebrew is my. His name means literally, the Lord, Yahweh, is my God. That's what makes an ordinary person extraordinary, our relationship with the living and true God. And so, he goes in to Ahab. We know who this dude is now. And he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. He's basically saying, I'm a follower of the living God, the real God, the true God. 
And then he says, before whom I stand. There was this confident awareness of the presence of God with him. He didn't feel alone. The idea was, you know, God knows the situation, and God is bigger than this situation, Elijah was saying. Let me ask you a question. How big really is your God? I don't mean theoretically up here. I mean practically in everyday functioning. How big is your God as we see the culture sliding downward? You know, is our attitude, hey, wait a minute, God already knows this situation. He's bigger than the situation. I don't need to start breaking out into a sweat. How big is your God when you're tempted to kind of step back and kind of blend in and not say much of anything? I think really what Elijah was saying to him here was to Ahab, you know what? You're pretty small compared to my God, who is the living God. And so often we lack boldness and courage. Why? Because we make men out to be bigger than God, and even the circumstances to be bigger than God. And we're going to see next time that Elijah was willing to act very clearly on God's word. No matter what the situation may be in the culture, God is always at work. He's always at work. He's always been at work. He always has a counter movement that is going on when there's an explosion of evil. And that's exactly what happens in the kingdom of Israel. We're going to see that Elijah put his hope in the promises of God. He is a man of prayer who walked with God in the midst of a warped world. And that leads us to the principle we want to begin to look at, and that is that God calls ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. God calls ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Ray Pritchard, I love the way he wrote it. He said this, when God wanted to bring forth a great nation, he called a successful middle-aged businessman named Abram and told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. When God wanted to deliver his people, he found an introvert slow of speech named Moses and sent him to talk to the Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the face of the planet. God calls ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. When the Lord needed someone to hide the spies in Jericho, he found a prostitute named Rahab. When God needed someone to defeat the giant Goliath, he chose a very young shepherd boy named David. God calls ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. When God wanted to deliver his people from destruction, he chose a young girl named Esther. When Christ wanted some men in his inner circle, he chose fishermen and a despised tax collector and a loud mouth named Peter and told them to drop everything and follow him. God calls ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And we need men, women, and young people this day. We need young people, men and women, in our schools, in our businesses, in our political offices, in our halls of justice, in our neighborhoods, who will stand tall and stand strong and boldly declare, I believe in Jesus Christ. You know, we need men, women, and young people who will heed the call to seize the day, who will step up for the Lord in days of apostasy. Men, women, and young people who will stand alone if necessary. 
And, and here's one thing that's important to remember. You know that each of us only has so much time on this planet to make a difference for eternity. You know, as I've gotten older, it's just been so vivid to me. There's only so many days to make a difference for eternity. There's only so many days to share the message of Jesus Christ with people. There's a movie a number of years ago entitled The Dead Poet Society. It's a movie that stars Robin Williams, and in this movie he plays a character of John Keating. And John Keating is teaching a literature class in this elite high school boarding school. He's teaching a class of boys. And as he's teaching them, he wants these students to learn a principle. He wants them to be different than most high school students who are just sort of drifting along, you know, just sort of blending in. He wants them to be different. He wants them to seize the day while there is opportunity. And part of what he uses to bring that point home to them is a little poem, a line from a poem. It goes like this. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The idea is to seize the day, to take advantage of the opportunity. And what he does with his students is he takes them out of their classroom, down the hallway, to this place where there's a glass case. And in that glass case are pictures of students from 100 years before. And he wants to communicate to these students he's teaching now, don't just drift through life. Let's take a look at a clip from the movie. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. I'd like you to step forward over here. And peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope. Just like you. Did they wait till it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. If you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? <clears throat> You know, Elijah's speaking to us 28 centuries later. And are we going to lean in and listen to what we can learn? You know, we only have a limited time to make a difference. We need to seize the day for his kingdom and for his glory. We need to stand up and boldly declare, I believe 
in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for Elijah and everything that he has to teach us. What an adventure we're going to be on as we lean in and listen to the legacy he wants to pass to us. We would pray that we would be men, women, and young people who stand up and boldly declare, boldly declare, I believe in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his mighty name. Amen.